I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. One of the rules in the science of animal behavior is you're not allowed to attribute human thoughts and emotions to other animals. But if an animal seems afraid in a situation that's dangerous to it, it's probably feeling afraid. Uh, An old, old emotion that we inherited. People didn't get, you know, we didn't get our nervous system from uh, Walmart. You know, we, we inherited it. So that means that a lot of the components of our nervous system and our abilities uh, come from a place that a lot of other animals have gotten it from. We share it. And these kinds of ways of attributing thoughts and emotions to animals are, are probably exactly what's going on. That's Carl Safina, whose love of nature has led him to a lifetime of studying the world we live in, a world from which we've become increasingly separated. Carl's books bring us back to that world with beautiful writing, and they often reflect on the other animals in the world with a firm understanding that a lot of what we are, we actually share with them. Carl, this is so great to be talking to you today because you have the answers to the questions that probably every one of us has been asking since we were a kid and had a pet turtle or a pet dog or a pet hamster. Well, I don't know if I have the answers, but I hope I have answers. Do they think? Do they feel? Now, your answer to that is, I think, definitely yes. They they do think... They don't think like us, they think like them. <laughs> so, and that's true for people too. You know, other people don't think like you do uh, or like I do. We all think a little differently and different species think differently. Yeah, of course we have, we humans have the tendency when we come up against somebody who thinks differently to conclude that they don't think at all. Yeah, we have belief systems. I'm not sure other animals have belief systems that, yeah, uh, that, you know, that pre- sounds pretty advanced. conceptual notions. But I talk mostly about wild animals, although I have, I have dogs and I have chickens and we have a couple of other animals at home. Um, they, they live very well in an extremely complicated world and they have to know where they are. They have to know where what they need is. They have to know who they're with, who their potential rivals, ma- mates, enemies, um, allies. And when those, when those categories are fuzzy, where it's not necessarily easy to tell how friendly a friendly other animal is, do you suppose there's a process of weighing the, uh, the considerations between well, I dealing think, with I think one with, or another? I think with some animals, you can, you can see them sizing each other up yeah, or that's being what I mean. tentative if they're not sure you you can see that uh you can see that with dogs at the beach if the you know if you go to a place where the dogs can run off leash um usually they will run right up to dogs they already know and a and a strange dog sometimes they will stop many my dogs sometimes stop many yards from a strange dog and they they watch they see if the tail starts wagging or or you know what the body postures are so they, they are evaluating, and they, they know what they have to do. What they have to do is, uh, well, my dogs don't are, are not aggressive, so what they have to do is avoid aggressive dogs. If, they're, if the dog is aggressive, what it has to do is start a fight. But, it, it, I mean, it knows its agenda. Right? <laughs> it's <laughs> What really interests me 
is because you're a scientist, mm-hmm. I'm interested to know when you became convinced that dogs, or dogs or any animals feel and think differently from us, but at all. Well, when I was a kid in Brooklyn, my father's hobby was raising canaries. So since the time I could first see and be aware of anything, I was able to see birds up very, very closely, inches away, uh, getting on and off their eggs, feeding their babies and things like that. So when I was seven years old, I graduated to having my own flock of homing pigeons. Mm. We had them in a coop in the backyard in Brooklyn. And when you when you raise homing pigeons, you have a stack of boxes. We used to use like peach crates or apple crates. We'd stack them up and then you would get a ceramic bowl then put it in there for them to build their nest. And then we would just leave it. And they would decide who they were going to be married to. And they would squabble about their mates or uh, their rivals. Then they would lay their eggs and take care of their little homes and their nests and feed their babies, go, go out for the day, come back, feed their babies again, and then they would go to sleep. And right across the yard, we lived in a tenement, which was a stack of boxes where the people figured out who they were going to be mated to, <laughs> took care of their nests, went out during the day, came back, fed their babies, and went to sleep. Yeah, but if we took you to Brooklyn, or out of Brooklyn, and took you to the Bronx, would you be able to find your way home the way well, the birds could? No, they had that over me. <laughs> Homing pigeons and many other birds are extremely good at learning how to get back home. There are many, homing pigeons are famous for it because they're domestic birds that we use for that purpose, but there are many birds that travel thousands of miles a year, and the next year they go right back to the exact same little territory that they had the year before or several years before. So when you began to develop as a kid this awareness that they had many more abilities than a lot of us ascribe to them, and and some somewhere along the way, did you come up against the idea of anthropomorphism? Yeah, so somewhere as, along as, the way. So then I went to learn about them in, in real school and, yeah. uh, and college, and I, I learned that everything I knew was wrong. Because it was anthropomorphic? Yes, basically, because there were rules. And one of the rules in uh, in the science of animal behavior is you're not allowed to attribute human thoughts and emotions to other animals. And it's, in a way, uh, it's good to be cautious about that, but sometimes that's the best first guess. If an animal seems afraid in a situation that's dangerous to it, it's probably feeling afraid, right? So that's a good first guess. Right. And there's nothing else, there's nothing else that you can come up with that better fits the idea that a predator arrives, the animal runs away, than, than that it's afraid. It's motivated to run because of fear, Uh, an old, old emotion that we inherited. People didn't get these, you know, we didn't get our nervous system from uh, from Walmart, you know, we we inherited it. So that means that a lot of the components of our nervous system and our abilities uh, come from a place that a lot of other animals have gotten it from. We share it and uh, a lot of animals that are pretty similar to us use them in identical ways. And they and the the logic of their behaviors shows that the best 
understanding of what they're doing and thinking, whether they're whether they're showing affection or they're showing curiosity or they're showing fear, or they're showing aggression. These all fit the circumstances in ways that we understand implicitly. If a family of elephants stops in the shade and the little babies lie down and go to sleep for a few hours and the adults are dozing, but they're standing up and they're all facing outward, that's because of exactly how we would make sense of that situation. It's because it's cooler in the shade. It's a better place to stop. They they let the babies go to sleep because the, the babies can be guarded, but they're no help in defense, so they get they get to go to sleep. The adults need to be vigilant, so they just doze and they stand, and they stand facing outward. So that makes perfect sense to us. So these kinds of ways of attributing thoughts and emotions to animals are, are probably exactly what's going on. One of the most startling things to me in your book was a picture of an elephant whose face gland, there's some kind of a face gland that mm -hmm. was streaming liquid, looked like tears. Yes, right. And they, they have glands on, in, on their cheeks, on the side of their well, face. First of all, what's the purpose of the gland? Well, it doesn't seem to have any other purpose than to communicate of um, emotions of high arousal, whether they are, and it, and it probably also produces a scent that goes along with uh, the liquid that flows out. Uh, I mean, in a way, you could say, well, isn't that weird to have a, a, a flowing gland right, you know, within a foot of your, your eyes and your mouth that streams a liquid that smells? Well, we have armpits that do that. But we also but, have eyes that tear. And, and, and we also have eyes that tear, and tear also, also in moments of high arousal, whether... Uh, whether it's you know abject uh, grief or or, or you just or you just won the U.S. Open or, or yes of, or tears tears of joy um, the you know these kinds of just like uh, uh, in high intensity emotions trigger tears in people and they seem to trigger these these elephant facial glands to stream in that way. So this elephant was a female who had just mated, right? And there were elephants females around her, I think you said they were encouraging her or? Well, they were, she, she was um, uh, one of the younger adults of that family and uh, a, a male in breeding condition had appeared and she ran out and the male, they have this uh, little courtship thing they do where the, the female sort of runs and the male kind of runs after her. And if he lays a trunk on her back, she stops. And that's sort of the dance they do. And then, and then they m mate. And after that, she came running, you know, trotting back to the family. Her, her facial glands were streaming, and everybody was very excited, and they were all sniffing her up and down, and it was, it was just a moment of high, high excitement. So I didn't know the preamble to the picture. I couldn't tell if it was a, a, a rough moment for her to have gone through the mating process. Because there was, they, nothing, they, they there was nothing rough or, um, or problematic about it that I observed at all. It seemed, it seemed very smooth. It was totally voluntary on, on everybody's part. It just seemed like everybody was excited by sex. <laughs> I, I can understand that. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 now I get... you're attributing... Elephant emotions to humans. Yeah, I'm elephant-amorphic. Yes. What I sometimes say is everything you see in other animals, well, everything you see in humans, there's some version of it in other animals, 
and you can often make loose analogies. So, uh, you know, we we get very excited about other people's personal lives or find that endlessly fascinating. The, the, the elephant version of that is they're, they're sniffing this female who's just made it all up and down. You know, they want to know, like, who was that and how was it and how are you feeling about it? And they get all this information in this way. And she 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 ran back to them, you know, sort of happy. And, and it was her family, so she was going to be with them. And they were all very excited, and they, they wanted to gather all the information they could about it. What that leads me to want to know from you is how much has been done to do controlled studies to try to ferret out the feelings and the thoughts that seem clear on the surface to us because they seem so much like what we go through. Mm. But how can we apply scientific standards of experimentation to that? Well, there's a couple of different ways. For a while, it was that if you wanted to study animal behavior, you put them in a cage, you train them to do something, you, you see what they do under certain circumstances. Very, very artificial. You could learn some things by that. That had a lot of limitations also. Uh, people have more recently, just for example, they they put dogs in in MRIs. They train them to be in an MRI machine, and then they show them pictures of strangers. We don't think dogs are visual because they don't usually react to pictures in ways that we see. Show them pictures of strangers, nothing much happens in their brain. They see a picture of somebody they know and love. The part of their brain uh, l- that lights up is is uh, the same part of our brain that lights up when we see pictures of people we know and love. Mm. You can... Um, you can wire up a rat's brain and wait for it to go to sleep and watch the brain start to activate uh, with the same kind of patterns that are the dream patterns that you see when human brains are dreaming. And yeah, How can you tell a dream about Parmigiano Reggiano from a dream about Marilyn Monroe? That's the hard thing. Well, that may be the hard thing, right. But when, but when your dog is lying there and, and they're asleep and their little paws are twitching and they're going... <laughs> it's <laughs> Parmigiano. It's, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as we talk, I'm wondering what this deeper knowledge of our cousins and and the rest of the animal kingdom, what can we draw from that? What should we draw from that? Well, I I think a a way of looking at it, which is the way it seems to me, is imagine you showed up somewhere and you, you didn't know anybody. You had no idea who you were with. And in, in a way, our identity is formed by our relationship to some other people, right? That that makes us who we are. And on this planet, we really don't know who we're here with. And it makes it hard for us to really know really who we are. But we're here with a lot of other creatures who they value their own lives. They have a very vivid experience of their own lives. And they know who they are. And they know who they're with. And and we, I think, we're we're drawing ourselves farther and farther away from the rest of the living world into an uh, an isolation of humans only. Whereas for hundreds of thousands of years, tribal people lived in very close contact with nature, and they had a lot of respect for other creatures. They they knew a lot about them, some of which they 
venerated or or even worshipped for their superhuman abilities. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of Native American groups held the wolf in very high esteem because they they were hunters and the wolves were really good hunters, right? And they they recognized and and revered that ability. Or or the salmon would come back mysteriously at a certain time of year and would provide food with without which the people would not be able to survive a year. So they would store up all these salmon for food for the rest of the year. And on and on. There are many, many examples of that. It, it, it let people understand who we were here with and respect the rest of the world. And, and we've become, I think, increasingly isolated. We, we've, on the science side, we've never understood who we were here with better than we understand now because we have some very detailed studies of some other animals. And they give us a, a lot of insight into how they conduct their lives and their capacities and, and how long they can remember individuals and their alliances and all these kinds of things. That knowledge was probably never available to anyone before just the last few decades. So that's, that's kind of what I'm driving at with my question. If we have so much better understanding of who these other animals are, how does that change our behavior? For instance, with our fellow people, Except in time of war, we usually don't hunt one another, and it's rare that we eat one another. And yet, is that going to change our behavior toward animals if it becomes so commonly understood as it is to you that they're so much like us? Well, you know, we dehumanize strange humans, right? Yeah. So, which, which helps us to treat them not so well if it's convenient for us. And when we get to know other kinds of people, and we're here in New York City where there are a lot of other kinds of people, and for the most part, we tend to have lots of friends and acquaintances who are from very different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different countries, different cultures, right? And we appreciate that, and it enriches our lives, and it, and it helps us to just be friendly and peaceful and compassionate to other people. And if we understood that this is exactly the way it is with other species, we would be more peaceful and compassionate. We would we would give them what they need, which is they just need room to exist. They they shouldn't really need us, but now they do really need us. They need us to recognize that their existence now totally depends on us. And and this to me is not a practical question for people. It's not what do I get? if we don't let elephants go extinct or, or some other little thing that seems a lot less significant than elephants, some kind of fish or, or a frog, what do we get out of it? I'm willing to say that we get essentially nothing out of it, except that we, we're here with these creatures that have also, they have the same right to be here as we do. I mean, they are of this world equally uh, to us being of this world. And a lot of them are from lineages that have been here for millions of years. And it becomes a moral imperative for us to just let them exist. In this country, we have the Endangered Species Act, which is about 50 years old. And we've just seen the federal government come out with rules that, uh, that are weakening the way that the Endangered Species Act is implemented, even though on a strictly moral basis, 
The Endangered Species Act is a federal law that said, in our country, we don't let species go extinct. We don't ask them, what good are you to us? We don't ask them, how much money are you worth? We have a value system that says we have simply a moral imperative to not let species go extinct and to come through the world without damaging it too much and leave it at least as good as we found it. That's, that's a moral thing. And it's not only a question of allowing other species to become extinct. We're also not letting them live the lives they were born to live while they're still with us. Carl explains right after this break. On December 14, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first-ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Award Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the End Blindness movement, including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.endblindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Carl Safina. If we worry about not letting any animal go extinct... Are we interfering with a process by which many animals have gone extinct over the millennia where something has to go away to be replaced by something else? Many things have gone extinct as the world has mostly slowly changed over a very, very, very long period of time. And many things have not gone extinct but have changed so much that the older forms are no longer with us. So for instance, we've been talking a lot about elephants. You can talk about anything, but let's just say elephants. An, an elephant that is of the kind that we have today, the African elephant, had an ancestor that was another kind of an elephant-like animal that did not go extinct. It changed over a long time into the modern African elephant, but the old form doesn't exist anymore because it it morphed, it changed. Mm -hmm. So so there are sort in a way there's two kinds of extinctions. There's the end of lineages, that has happened a lot, and there's just the morphing into the more modern forms. That has also happened a lot. But none of that has happened at the rate at which we're simply killing off animal populations, shrinking the ranges of species and causing species to go extinct. That in recent times, in let's say the last hundred years or so, certainly since the Industrial Revolution, that, that has sped up the process of animals getting wiped out by about a thousand fold over what would be considered 
uh, the normal natural rate. It's all tied together in some tangle that's hard to hard to disengage for me because since we've been farming, we've been collecting animals, using them for meat, using them for dairy products in this process that we're proud of as the development of our species, organizing ourselves to feed ourselves better, mm-hmm. to have beer, very, very big, <laughs> very big advance, which I'm proud of as, as a member of the species. But in the course of that, we, we've taken animals out of their natural free-range atmosphere, and we've used them unknowingly, unwittingly, mm-hmm. to hurt our own, our own, the whole thing, the whole planet. Mm-hmm. When I add to that the idea that animals, all animals seem to eat one another, mm-hmm. are we supposed to, do you think, like, what's your, what's your own personal thing? Are you a hunter or a fisher? Do you eat meat? Do you eat fish? I catch fish and I eat them, and that's a, a a pretty a pretty big part of our diet at home. I don't buy any meat from any farmed animals, and I don't buy um, I don't buy dairy products either. And what's your reasoning? Well, twofold. One is that um, it, you know there is a lot of predation in the wild. First of all, everything dies. You can't stop any individual from dying. Everything dies. In the wild, there's a lot of predation. A lot of things eat other things. Everything eats something. But what they eat, what is the prey, gets to be who it's supposed to be until that moment when it's caught by the hunter or the, the predator. With with farming, the animals never get to be who they're supposed to be. And they live lives that are much worse and much more miserable than how they're made to die. They're made to live much worse than they're made to die because the kinds of farms we have now are, are factories and all of those animals are are there to be killed. It's, you know, the analogy to human behavior there is a very, very uncomfortable one. They're basically concentration camps. Mm-hmm. And at that scale, I don't want to be part of that. I'm not against humans killing an animal for food. I don't think that's the most bizarre thing in the world because a lot of things kill other animals to eat. But to make them live that way is a bizarre thing. It's To me, it's so complicated because when the wolves started to become extinct, they were brought back. And one of the problems that I, I read in your book was that as the wolves became extinct, the elk got more numerous and were dying of hunger because... They ate all their own food. They ate all their food. Right. And the wolves came back right. and they were no longer dying of hunger, but they were dying from being eaten by the wolves. Yeah. But, there, but there's a lot... I mean, the fact is the world can work that way. And, you know, the world has had many millions of years to work out what works and what doesn't work. And these are... These are balancing functions that are inherent in the living world. It's been worked out over hundreds of millions of years. The, the wolves don't just randomly go and mow down a patch of elk. They, they chase a herd of elk. Nine out of ten times they can't catch anything. Sometimes they come on one that is either old or injured or young, 
and that one is vulnerable, and they take that. And and doing that enough, the the elk have enough food. The elk generally get to live as elk are supposed to live. The wolves live as wolves are supposed to live. There can't be too many wolves for how many elk there are because then the wolves don't get enough food, and they and they don't die or they don't reproduce as well. And all of that was working for millions of years. For millions of years, yes. One thing I read recently really blew my mind, which is a lot of people know that dinosaurs have been extinct for about 65 million years. That seems like a very long time. But dinosaurs existed for well over 100 million years. They've been extinct for a shorter time than they existed. And I find that, I find that very informative, not only mind-blowing, but very informative. You know, these things are out of a, a, a very, very, very deep past. The, the birds that we see are, are literally those dinosaurs, those few dinosaurs that didn't go extinct and morphed and are with us today, we call those birds. Mm. And So in a they, way, they're still around. So in a way, they're still around, and they were built over hundreds of millions of years. And I just read a paper that said, uh, if we look at the, the rate of extinction and we convert the rate of extinction into what is the loss of genetic diversity, the animals we've driven extinct in the last hundred years represent a degree of genetic loss that would take five million years to put back on Earth. I've been told by people who've studied this that the average lifespan of a species is about two million years. And I wonder if humans, modern humans, who I don't think you could say have even been around for more than a million years. I don't think it even... Modern humans, no, only about 200,000 years. Yeah. Right. So do we have any hope of being average in terms of the species' lifespan? So hard to predict, but at the rate we're going, we need to make a much better deal with the world and with ourselves because the wheels are going to come off at this rate. And we're, we're having a big, huge party right now, but it, it's costing a lot to keep this party going. And we are damaging the life support systems of the world. The, the reason that the extinction of species should alarm us is not because humans cannot live without chimpanzees or marsh rats or cottontail rabbits or robins. You know, we could live without all of those things. But, but the decline and disappearance of these species shows that we're, we're poisoning the land and we're poisoning the air and the water and we're we're destroying the ability of the planet to support life and and when that goes around that will come around eventually we'll we'll live in a very you know at the rate that we're going with the rate of extinction a thousand times above normal we will live in a very simplified very depauperate what I would call a very, very lonely world. And then those systems that we really need, 
enough wood to keep us going, enough water to keep us going, systems that are already obviously stressed, uh, they won't be there. We're running out of what supports this party. That's what I'm worried about is can we survive our own ingenuity? Because that would get... take wisdom. And what we see <laughs> is that people have no end of technological uh, ability and cleverness and wizardry. We, we're the master tinkerers. We're unbelievably clever at coming up with new ways to do this or that. But what's the plan? What wisdom is guiding us? What, what, what are the goals? How are we supposed to live? Nobody agrees on any of this. I mean, our whole plan seems to be faster, more, right? And if that's not guided by vision and wisdom and compassion, then uh, faster, more tends to crash into something. But that's our culture. That's yes. it, we we yes. don't live at a time when it's reasonable to think we're going to develop the Native Americans' respect for the sacred life of the animal. I, I think it's quite reasonable to think that that we should have the respect for life on Earth. We're on this miracle of a living planet, and. The most fundamental thing is to honor this miracle, and and once that's accomplished, to figure out what else we might like to do here. Your writing is extraordinary. It's very personal. It's vivid. It's alive. Thank you. That's very kind. I'll take it. <laughs> Why do you devote so much time to writing? Are you are you? Are you on a mission to accomplish something with the writing? Yes. I want to show everybody how beautiful and miraculous the world is. That's really it. And I want to I want people to understand the challenges that humans are confronting the rest of life with. So I used to say that my writing was about how the ocean is changing and what those changes mean for wildlife and people of the sea, but it has changed, and now I would say that my writing is about the human relationship with the rest of life on Earth. That's pretty big, but uh, you know we do, we do live on this true miracle of a planet, and I just would love to share that with people. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to share that with people. You you clearly write from a place of love toward what you write about. There's it's it's not academic, it's not abstract. I get the impression when you when you write about other animals, when you write about our our environment, mm -hmm. you're in love with it. You're writing. Uh, I, you're writing I am, a love I am letter. in love with it, and actually, um, in my my little description of myself on Twitter. You know, they have that thing on your uh -huh. profile there. Uh -huh. it, it, it says something like ecologist in love with the living world. Um, and I, I'm a scientist. Ecology is my, my science discipline, but I don't, I don't consider myself a science writer. I'm not writing about science. I'm writing in, an, in a way that is informed by science, what we've learned about the world because science has helped us understand how really rich and counterintuitive and surprising the world is in so many ways that we now understand so much better. That's what I love about science. 
it not only gives us a handle on the world we live in, it's it's beautiful and entertaining and mysterious and and awe-inspiring. Right. It, it puts right. us in touch with mysteries in a way right. that nothing else does that I know of. Yes, and the more you understand, the more beautiful and entertaining and mysterious everything gets. Just a few minutes ago, when I was sitting in the park across the street with my stepdaughter, we were we were noticing some sparrows in the bushes, and I saw a bird that I couldn't quite identify, and and I'm a birder, so of course that bothered me that I couldn't identify it. But we both took out our phones. I had two bird guides on my phone, and I I realized it took a couple of minutes. Um, and both, I was very proud of my stepdaughter because she's not a birder, and it took her about the same amount of time it took me to narrow it to two species. The bird had disappeared, then it came back. We got, we got down to one species, and I realized that it was, it was the fall plumage of a bird that I'm pretty familiar with in its spring and summer plumage. And that discussion just let us see how many possibilities there were that we, we narrowed it down at first to two, and then two became one. So if you just see, oh, there's some little birds hopping around, that's just one thing. If you realize all the different things it could be and which one it is, well, then that information and understanding just made the world explode in riches. And that's what it did. So and it the was more a you delightful know, couple of minutes. The more you know, the more delightful it is. Yes, absolutely. And the more questions you have to ask, that's what I love. Every time right. a new discovery opens a door, it opens a door to a hundred more doors. Yes, can... yes, we're never going to run out of doors in no. the universe, I think. <laughs> we're running out of time, so it was good to end on that note yes. of hope. Well, thank we, you. We end our... We end our shows with seven quick questions. Are you Uh-oh. game? They're, they're, they're mild. They're, they're, okay. they're generally about communication. Okay. What's the hardest thing you've ever tried to explain to someone? Yeah, well, that requires a lot of thinking because I've tried to explain a lot of things to a lot of people, but I think that the most counterintuitive, really important thing to try to explain is ocean acidification. Why is that so hard? You can't see it in any way. I mean, you can talk about climate change and say, you know, you see these monster storms. You you see that the uh, the average temperature is getting warmer. You know, here are the measurements, and it's kind of obvious. But ocean acidification is is simply not something anybody experiences. Okay, what's going well, on is that the carbon dioxide from the burning that we do, when it when that carbon dioxide mixes with seawater, it creates carbonic acid, the lowering of the pH is causing a lot of stress and strain to a lot of very small living things that are the basis of all life in the ocean, and they are starting to cause coral and anything else with a shell to grow slower and thinner and weaker. Well, you just gave us a show there. Okay, good. We'll watch for What's that. question two? Question two is, how do you handle a nosy person? How do I handle a nosy person? Yeah. <laughs> it's a communication <laughs> relating question. When, when somebody expresses nosiness toward your private life, how do you handle that? 
I don't know I've ever had that problem. I tend to be pretty open. I'm not a very guarded person. What do you want to know about my private life? It's none of your business. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. How do you tell someone that they have their facts wrong? Gently and with compassion, usually. I don't attack them and say, you have your facts wrong. I, I, I would, you know, I would say, well, the, the, the facts that I know, I read about this, I saw this, I, I observed this, I talked to these scientists, I spent three weeks in this place. This is, this is what I know to be true. I was in a taxi once, and the taxi driver was explaining to me that the world was 6,000 years old. And I said, well, scientists have figured out with fossils and carbon dating that it's a lot older than that. And uh -huh. he said, scientists don't know how to tell time very well. That's, that's very funny. <laughs> okay, next question. What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? Oh, boy. I, I, I don't know. I, I can think of a funny thing somebody once asked me. I, I, once, I once took some bir somebody out birding. It, it was the first time she ever went birding. She was very interested in, in birding. And we went to Jamaica Bay, not, not very far from here. And we were sitting a little blind by the pond, and some quail came out. And I said to her, look, see, look at the quail over there. So she looks with her binoculars, and, and she says, okay, quail, wow, quail. So... Are those ducks or are they birds? <laughs> That's, now you came up with a strange question. <laughs> All right, next one. How do you stop a compulsive talker? I usually introduce somebody else and say I have to refill my drink. Oh, that's good. Okay, that, a lot of people use alcohol. That's a way to get, it doesn't have to be alcohol. It could be seltzer and right. uh, lime or something. How do you start up a real good conversation with someone who you don't know at a dinner party? Usually the best way to start a conversation is ask somebody about themselves. Like what would you say? Let's say I'm, you don't know me. You sit down next to me. What, what, what would you ask me about well, myself? Well, you know, the classic thing is what's your sign, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so they asked him when we went to California, they asked my wife, Arlene, what's your sign? She said, starve David. <laughs> That's good. That's good. So what, do, uh, what would no, you people, ask? Uh, people are, um, we all want to know the commonalities, right? So mm. uh, often a good opener is just, do you, do you live nearby? Or um, what, what interests you, I sometimes ask. Mm. Ra rather, it's a twist on what do you do. Mm -hmm. I don't really like that question, what do you do? Yeah, I feel the same way. But I, I sometimes say, so what, what interests you? Yeah. yeah, I ask them what their passion is. Uh -huh. Similar. Okay, last question. What gives you confidence? In what? Well, you pick it. Life? Any, why, why, that's an interesting answer. What do you mean in what? <laughs> what, do you, what, what went through your mind there? I think what, well, I, you can be confident uh, in tomorrow, you could be confident that we will find our way out of these problems. You could be confident in the next election. You could be oh, confident see. that I can deal with any problems, you know, yeah, it's at different yeah. levels. Yeah, I'll well, tell you what gives me comfort. What gives me comfort is that life on Earth ha is very old and has been through an awful, awful, awful lot, and that gives me comfort. Well, you also have confidence because you had the confidence to give yourself your own question. <laughs> Thank you, Carl. That was great. Thank you so much. This was really terrific. I really enjoyed it. Me too.
This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Carl Safina is the author of seven books on ecology. His most recent book is entitled Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. He's also the author of the critically acclaimed Song for the Blue Ocean. That was a groundbreaking work, and it helped to advance the conservation of wildlife and the environment and to give a voice to nature. To learn more about Carl and the important work being done at his center at Stony Brook University, please visit carlsafina.org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our executive producer, Sarah Chase, and our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, our tech guru is Allison Costin, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And don't forget, you can always say, Alexa, play Clear and Vivid on Apple Podcasts. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Conan O'Brien. He's been the host of Conan on TBS for the last 10 years, but his talk show career stretches now to over 26 years and many thousands of guests. I am not the great host, with a capital H, who's sitting back in my chair and the guest needs to prove themselves to me. Even if I've been around for 26 years, I have to roll up my sleeves and get down in the mud with them as a fellow human being. And I think that's key, this sense of parity, that we're in this together, we're both humans, and let's try and figure this out. Conan O'Brien and the mystery of his hair, next time on Clear and Vivid.